In this episode of Desert Island Torah, we have the Zachut of speaking to Noam Wasserman, the Dean of Yeshiva University's Sims School of Business. Before becoming Dean in mid-2019, he was a Professor of Entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School and the Chair Professor and Founding Director of a Center at the University of Southern California. He has written two best-selling books that have won international awards, has had his research published in top academic journals, and has written multiple features and columns for the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Inc. Magazine. Thank you so much, Noam, for joining us today. It's real good to have you with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out and asking. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. So it's Desert Island Torah, three pieces of Torah that you take with you to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? Really looking forward to finding out your three pieces today and learning with you. So if we jump right in, should we go with your first piece? Okay, uh, absolutely. The uh, In general, if I could take uh, Talmud Bavli, if I could take all of Shas, then <laughs> that's what I would want to take. If I have to pick three specific pieces with me, um, uh, there are three that I jotted down. I actually came up with at least five. So there's lots of great stuff that I have found very informative for my own life, let alone as examples of uh, the tremendous things that we can get uh, out of Gemara and uh, in general from Chazal and stuff. Um, the first of them um, is possibly my favorite daf in all of Shas, Baba Metziah daf Pei Dalet. Very easy to remember because Pei Dalet is daf backwards. Uh, and so uh, this one is the daf where we meet the most iconic of the Chavrusa duos across all of Shas. Um, those being Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish. We see how they met, how Rabbi Yochanan brought Reish Lakish back into the fold. Um, and then a bunch of the relationship with them as Chavrusas, the dynamic. Um, and then, unfortunately, the demise of Reish Lakish. And one of the key things that embodies for me, this is something I've been focusing on for the last few years as I'm going through like the end of the last round of Daf Yomi and then now this round, is the importance of not getting lost in the back and forth in the Gemara and instead focusing on the people understanding the Tamanayim, the Yomorayim, the, uh, the huge Gedolim that we had, their lives, their experiences, and how those inform where they came out with a lot of the opinions that they have, a lot of the things that they argue, and lessons that we might be able to learn from it. And so that's one of the key things of understanding. A uh, great trivia question. This actually was in the uh, art scroll. They came out with their introduction to the Talmud uh, right at the end of the last Daf cycle. And in there, they have some great stats on who is the most cited and quoted uh, across all of Shas. And it turns out it's Rabbi Yochanan by a lot. Um, and so Rabbi Yochanan is who we're uh, focusing on here, um, like the, the impact that he had. He was uh, uh, Rosh Hashiva for 80 years, raised hundreds of Talmidim, they most cited across all of Shas and uh, very all-encompassing of the things that he does. Um, but there's uh, here, when we're talking about the relationship between him um, and Ray Shlakish, um, let me set the table with one of the key dynamics there. So uh, Reish Lakish passed away, and Rabbi Yochanan was totally blown away by that, disconsolate in terms of uh, not being able to recover from that major loss. And uh, the Chachamim of the time had a solution. We have another Gadol that will put together with you to be able to be your new Chavrusa, Rabbi Lazar ben Padas. Uh, great, we have the solution. Have at it. You know, go back to your, uh, your old learning that you had together with Reish Lakish before, but with your new Chavrusa. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't go well. The key problem that Rabbi Yochanan highlighted was the style that Rabbi Lazar brought to the Chavrusa. Everything that he said was, that's brilliant, Rabbi Yochanan. 
let me show you these proofs for why you are right. Uh, essentially supporting everything that he said. And Rabbi Yochanan said that I only became the most quoted person across all of Shas. I only became you know, such a big person uh, in the, the Judaic pantheon because Rach Lakish would push back against me 24 times. He would throw darts at everything I said. He would object to what I was doing, not support me. And so this was one of the key things that he's coaching, uh, that he's coaching Rabbi Lazar to, and how to change. Rabbi Lazar can't change. And so a key question is, what is going on in this divergence? And also, why couldn't he change over time? Um, despite the coaching, despite his uh, hearing about the key way in which he would have to act. And so to set the table a little bit for that, um, let's go back to the first duo in all of history. So you have the founding couple of the world, and you have the two-word encapsulization of what their relationship is. The Torah calls it Azer Konegdo. And if you look at Rashi, so it seems to be a bit of a contradiction, a help against you. Uh, there are all sorts of ways that we have some explanations about it. And Rashi has his own explanation um, that essentially says that if you are worthy, it will be a help. If you're not worthy, then it's going to be against you. What does that say? What does that say to you when you get pushback? What does that mean in terms of is that a good comment on you or is that a bad comment on you that you're getting pushback from someone? It's a bad comment. Okay, I wasn't worthy of getting better. The ultimate is getting the good, not getting the pushback. And so that's what Rashi is commenting on. And to me, that captures the descriptive of human instinct of like how we are naturally built, that we recoil from pushback when we get some criticism that it does not feel good. A key thing is that there's a very different perspective on it that actually happens to map to some of the entrepreneurial research that I've been doing for the last 20 years, some of the other things that we'll try to tie in and things like that. Because to me, it's a great example of like here at Shiva University, the things that we try to do is bring together the Torah and the business to be able to have a lot more of the strength that we can get from understanding both of them. Um, the Torah U business, U being the connecting pin between them, uh, we can get stronger, not just from knowing each of them, but where we can have the, uh, the, the, the bringing them together. And so this is just one example of it, of the perspective that I had in terms of um, the, what it would mean from an entrepreneurial mindset perspective when you get pushback. And when I was talking about this one time at my alma mater, my high school alma mater, um, at Eula in Los Angeles, uh, Rabbi Nachum Sauer, who's one of the uh, all-time great Rabbanim in the, on the West Coast, he happened to be sitting in on it. And when I gave him this entrepreneurial explanation, he said, that's the Nitziv. Now, Tali Tzviya here to Berlin says exactly that about Azer Kanugdo. And so it turns out that there's a disagreement between Rashi, what we already talked about, with, uh, it's a bad knock against me if I get the criticism. The Nitziv says that we focus on the wrong part of it. We focus on the Azer as being the critical part, but actually the Kanugdo, the pushback, is what we have to see as a bracha, as a blessing. When someone is willing to go and tell us some kind of a criticism, that is doing us the biggest favor in the world. It's something we were blind to, something we didn't realize in terms of a whole. And we should actually see the connecto, the pushback, as the azer, as the thing that is going to be helping us. And so to me, that's the normative of how we should be acting, how we should be reprogramming ourselves, that the natural instinct is recoil, as Rashi is saying, but that if we can translate it into the entrepreneurial mindset part, of seeking the criticism, of being able to see it as a great blessing for us, um, that that's one of the key things that will help us be able to become the Rabbi Yochanan of, uh, of our day. Um, and so to me, that's how it's breaking down in terms of that difference. When it was Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish, they were the Nitziv. 
They were the pushback is the blessing, the 24 darts that you throw. That's how you get stronger. That's how you become a gadol ador, the greatest of the generation. However, Rabbi Elazar ben Padas was Rashi. He was pushback. That's critical. That's you know negative. That's I should be supporting you. I should be doing the Azer and things like that. And so by bringing that lens of the founding team of the world coming into Daf Pei Dalid, we can understand a lot better about that breakdown and that difference between the two of them. And it's very interesting. You look in the Gemara. What was the source of Rashi's comment about if you merit, then you'll get the Azer. If you don't merit, it's going to be the pushback. Rabbi Elazar is the one who says it in the Gemara. It was so deeply embedded in him. That's what he has quoted as that explanation. It was very much what we call from an entrepreneurial perspective, his entrepreneurial blueprint, like his mental model of how the world works, um, uh, that it was very deeply embedded. And because of that, he couldn't transition to a different mode of operating, despite coaching, despite all of those things. And to me, it's also a general thing about life, about when we are going through transitions, our having to be able to tune into what was the blueprint we were using? What was the mental model and operating uh, procedures that we were using in this old part of life. Now that we're in a new one, we should diagnose what is going to be the key way in which we have to address our blueprint, which we have to change the way that we've been operating. And we can see it that when it's very deeply embedded, you're going to have trouble in that new realm. Even more important for you to take a proactive approach to it, for you to be able to find the ways that you might be able to anticipate where you're going to have some rude awakenings. Uh, seeking the pushback is one of the great ways to anticipate it. Seeking from people who know this derech, this path that you've gone down, can tell you about the biggest differences you're not going to be ready for. Maybe they suffered for having had those differences and they can, from their tuition bill, you can be able to benefit from it. Um, being able to seek feedback is not something we naturally do. We recoil from doing that, but it's something that if we can learn the power of it, it's going to be even better. Here at YU, this is one thing that we actually just wrapped up last week. Uh, we have the faculty who seek mid-semester feedback from their students. It's not just at the way end, that's the standard, uh, you have the students rate you in your course and give you a couple of comments. Do it in the middle of the semester. Find at least one gem that during the remainder of your time together with the students, you can adjust. You can be able to hone things. You can be able to take their input. Um, there's a, to me, there's actually the last slide that I used to put up um, when I was teaching at Harvard Business School. I would thank my students for teaching me. It's from Tainas Dab Zion. Rabbi Fanina talking about, I learned from my professors. From all, I learned more from my friends. I learned more from my peers, the friends and things like that. Yeah. Who did I learn the most from? From my students. And that's where I was thanking them for having them be the connecto, have them give me the mid-semester feedback, having them be able to help me see ways in which, even though I've taught this course 10 times, there's still insights, there's still things we can gain from these students about how to be able to raise our game, go and things like that. And so just some of the ways that we might be able to translate that into the everyday life that we have of seeking that feedback treasuring it, really considering it seriously, thanking the person who pushed back on us as giving us a real bracha, all the ways in which Rabbi Yochanan was owned and by, by having that relationship with Reish Lakish then being able to take that same kind of model that we can bring into modern day. So that's the first of the ones that, uh, that I would point to. Amazing, um, really, really important message, um, especially when we learn, learning from like our mistakes and really confronting our mistakes. It's, it's such a fundamental message and really, really powerful. Thank you for sharing. Are we ready for your second piece? Sure. No, absolutely. The learn from mistakes is actually what I'm going to go deeper on for the last one. Um, but uh, yeah, let's go and take the, the next of them. Um, <clears throat> this is again from, uh, from Talmud Bodley. Um, this one is from the last, uh, the way end of uh, Masaka Sota. And uh, if anything, to me, one of the greatest one-liners in all of Gemara. Uh, so 
they're getting into when Rebbe died. So the uh, all-time Gadol who crafted the Mishnah and everything that was the foundation of, of the Gemara. When Rebbe died, what did we lose? That that was the end of humility. That was the end of Amnava. And then the line that follows it, Rabbi Yosef stands up and says, don't worry about it. I am still here. Humility is not dead. The ultimate ironic line, bragging about, you know, I am the one who is, the, is going to be able to keep humility alive. Um, and so where is this coming from? How do we understand that, you know, no, 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 I'm still here. Humility hasn't died. Um, and so to me, uh, we can understand again the person and have that be the way in which we can then be able to grapple with the explanation for that. And so to understand Rabbi Yosef, um, we can go to the last stop also. Um, so the last stop from Sota that Sparks are looking to the last stop in Masecha Brachos. Um, that last stop talks about when there was an opening for the Rosh Yeshiva, being able to have, you know, the, the Gadol Ador be able to step up into the Rosh Yeshiva role and trying to figure out across two very different people who that should be. So it talks about it in terms of two different types of, if you will, mental strengths that people are bringing to it. There's Sinai, and then there's Oker Harim. Sinai is the all-encompassing knowledge of Kola Torah Kula. You know everything that was given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Sinai, um, the all-encompassing encyclopedia of knowledge. Is that going to be the best person to be the Rosh Hashiva? Or Oker Harim might not have that all-encompassing knowledge, but he can really uproot the mountain, be able to find brand new Hidushim, be able to really make the innovations and uh, really be able to have like the, the brand new lightning bolts that he can bring to everyone. And so which of those would you pick? If you were picking a Rosh Yeshiva, which of the two of those would you want to have? For me, I, I like Hidushim. I like studying shots. Just in general, I'm very into shots. So to find something new and to interpret something new stands out to me. But then at the same time, you would also say, sorry, I'm a Sinai. Okay, so <laughs> because well, it's it's Torah from Sinai, it's the whole it's the Torah, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So um, it's very attractive to have it be like the um, in the classroom. We we talk about takeaways. What is a takeaway? Surprising yet important. That's you know, like the 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 chiddush, the the lightning bolt type of thing. You can have not just you know the okay, sounds nice. Thank you for sharing that with me. Versus wow, that kind of an effect when you hear a Dvar Torah. Then that is the Oker Harim that uh, is very attractive. When uh, they actually sent that question to the uh, Chachami, asking them, you know, we have this choice, which one is better? The word that came back is that Sinai is better to be a Rosh Yeshiva. Maybe have, you know, a Magid Shira, maybe have a Rebbe in the Yeshiva who's going to be the one giving the Shira that is going to be the, the Oker Harim, things like that. But the better one is to be the, um, the Sinai. Interesting thing in terms of the two who embodied that and who were the candidates for it. The Sinai was Rav Yosef, who we've been talking about. The Oker Harim was Rabbah. When that word came back, they therefore then offered Rav Yosef the position of Rosh Yeshiva. But this goes a little bit to the humility part, but it, we'll come back around to it where there's actually an even better answer for it. Rav Yosef had gotten, whether it's a prophecy, it's a little confusing about exactly where it came from, but some knowledge that two years after he became Rosh Yeshiva, he would pass away. And so his being named Rosh Hashim was the last thing that he wanted to have. And so he essentially said, give it to Rabbah. Let him be the Rosh Hashim. And when he's done, then I'll take the reins. And so Rabbah became the Rosh Hashim. And the Gemara at the end of Brachas gets into a whole bunch of the ways that 
Rabbi Yosef made sure that people understood that, that uh, Rabbi was the Rosh Yeshiva. He would not have any of the kavod or any of the other signs or anything like that that he would take or anything. Um, and so he made sure that he was going to be on the sideline and that Rabbi would be able to take control of it. Um, but that's one of the key things of being able to understand like his mental model and the other ways um, that he has that. Turns out after Rabbi actually ended up being that for 22 years, um, and then Rabbi Yosef took over as the Rosh Yeshiva for those two years, two and a half years before he passed away. The question we can ask on this, so Rabbi Yosef was the Sinai, all-encompassing knowledge, the walking encyclopedia. We see throughout Shah several times that his main student, Abaye, says to him, Rebbe, you didn't teach us that. You taught us the opposite. Let me remind you about what you taught us. What are we to make of that? The encyclopedia that is has pages ripped out of it, missing holes, other things like that in the knowledge. And Abaye is highlighting for us that, wait, what happened to, uh, to the Sinai? And so key question that we have in terms of what happened, what can we understand in terms of Reb Yosef and um, uh, where, uh, where is that hole coming from for him? So we just finished in Dafyomi, we just finished uh, Masechus Subos. And there's two elements that are related to this that come from there. The first page of it, there's a Rashi that explains for Rav Yosef that Rav Yosef was actually hit by an illness later in life. That illness caused amnesia. And also we think because Rav Yosef is one of the prominent blind people throughout the Gemara, that that illness caused amnesia and blindness for him. And so he was Sinai until he got hit by that. And then he lost a lot of his knowledge because of that amnesia. And that's why Abaye had to be there by his side to be able to remind him about it. It's also though, Ravari Leibowitz, who's the head of the Smifa program here at Yeshiva University, he was my daf Rebbe throughout the last cycle. And when he was doing um, this daf, he had a great explanation for that end of Sota and where Rav Yosef was, was coming from. What he, was, what he said where Rav Yosef was coming from was with his having gotten hit by this illness, he was the ultimate embodiment that everything comes from Hashem. Hashem bestows our talents, our knowledge, the Sinai to us, but it can also disappear in a second. It is not us who are determining our talents, our knowledge, our skills. We have those blessings that come from Hashem, and we also see that that can disappear in a second if Hashem deems that that is the best thing to happen for us and for the world. And so what Rav Yosef was saying at the end of Sota, no, I'm still here, is everyone has me as a living embodiment of what humility means. Humility is that it's not me, it is all coming from Hashem. And if I am still in the base Medrash, we still have that reminder about exactly what another means and it is not gone, it is not dead after all this time. And so that's one of the key things that we have first in terms of understanding Rav Yosef, what he went through, understanding some of the puzzles and the great one-liner that he had at the end of Sota. There's one other thing though, that's very interesting in Ksubas. This is uh, uh, the, about a third of the way into the Masefta, this is on uh, Membez about Rabbi and Rav Yosef would learn together a little bit throughout that time that, uh, that, uh, that Rabbi was Rosh Yeshiva. They grappled with a really difficult problem together that neither could resolve. And they grappled with it for 22 years. And then, lo and behold, who, do you, who would you think would be the one to resolve it? Sinai or Oker Harim that, that could come up with the answer to this, uh, this, this puzzle? Who would you think? Oker okay, Harim, Oker okay, Harim. No, it's exactly, that's who we would think would have the chiddush, you know, the, 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 the lightning yeah. bolt that solves a 22-year puzzle, uh, who would be able to do it. 
Interesting thing, A, about the 22 years is how long did I mention that Rabbah was the Rosh Hashiva? Yes, he is. What must have happened right at that point is that Rabbah passed away and Rav Yosef was now named the head of the, of the yeshiva as had been the negotiation 22 years before. What would be your biggest worry if you were you know, Klai Yisrael seeing this? Is Rav Yosef going to be able to have chidushim like Rabbah was able to? We got used to having you know, the, the amazing shirim that are you know, the surprising and important takeaways and other things like that. Now we've got Sinai, you know, we've got the all-encompassing knowledge, great, but is anyone going to come to Shir? Is anyone going to be thrilled with the fact that he's now a Rosh Yeshiva? What it was in the Gemara in Suez, it says, who was the one to solve it? Rav Yosef was the one to have the Kiddush, to have the insight into it. And my own pet theory, I haven't been able to find any uh, Chazal who would talk about this at all, but to me, I think that was Hashem working on behalf of Rav Yosef as he is having to take the reins having to have the succession be a smooth transition to his becoming Rosh Yeshiva, Hashem essentially was saying to people through helping Rav Yosef be able to solve this problem, this is a rock star. You should be very psyched to have this as your Rosh Yeshiva. He can do both Sinai and Oker Harim. Don't have any worries, by the way, about his illness, about his amnesia, about any of that type of stuff. I am on his side. I can give him everything that he needs to be able to excel as a Rosh Yeshiva. So that's my own pet theory about what was going on with that. But it gets back into, again, the dynamic, the chavrusas, the understanding the people, bringing together all those pieces of the puzzle to understand Rav Yosef, his one-liner, and also a bunch of the experiences from which we can learn about how we have Hashem being able to help us through a bunch of those challenging times. Great message. Really, really fundamental and great message. So are we ready for your last piece? Sure, absolutely. So this one is backing up for Dapim from where we... Saw Sinai and Oker Harim. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, this is on Rabbah's Samech. Um, uh, the tail end of it is a story about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was heading to a town and it was getting dark and he was hoping to be put up in the town for the night, very dangerous times. And he was there with his donkey. He had his candle, he had his chicken. He was bringing them all to the town. Do you remember this story? Ah, good. Okay, so you've already gone to a key part of the punchline. It's also so, in Tanit. So there, Rabbi Akiva, actually, as we'll talk about, there are examples of Rabbi Akiva embodying that throughout all of Shas. And we should also get into a little bit about where did that come from um, in terms of what, how he was different when it came to that mindset. It's also part of the entrepreneurial mindset um, that we can talk about how that comes from it. But Akiva is trying to get to the town. And it turns out they don't have any room for him. Major setback. How would we usually react to it? Going back to the human nature and things like that. Recoil from setbacks. We have some kind of a bump in the road. It's like, woe is me. Regret that you went down this road. All sorts of things that you know, are the natural human instinct for it. But as you're saying, how did Rabbi Akiva react to that? So this must be a gamzul. It's going to turn into... So this is all going to be for the, the best. For the good. Super for the good. Exactly. Let me hang in there. Let me persist through this. The entrepreneurial persistence of through the bumps in the road, that's going to be a key to being able to get through these problems like that. And so he goes, pitches his tent outside the town, and essentially in this dangerous territory, stranded outside the town, he pitches a tent. But at least he has his companionship, his donkey. At least he has his candle to give him a little bit of light. And so that's part of a little bit of Gamza Tova. I can, you know, at least I have those things. What happens? Dark comes. 
And do you remember what happened to the donkey? A wild animal came along and killed the donkey. This is the critical transportation mode in addition to companionship that he had. How would we naturally be reacting to it? Woe is me, can't believe it, why is this happening? Other things like that. But Rabbi Akiva, what did he say? <laughs> Hang in there, Rabbi. You know, keep yourself going through this. Um, we're we're going to be able to get through this together. And so um, uh, that was how he's doing each, through each of those. Next up, at least I have my light here. Wind comes along, blows out the candle. Gamsulatova. <laughs> exactly. So reprogrammed a very different approach in terms of being able to keep himself going with it. So gets through the night, keeping on pushing on himself or persisting and other things like that. And then, uh, do you remember what he sees when the, the sun comes up? So he looks at that town that had been his dream, his hope, his aspiration, thinking on staying in the town. And what had happened to it overnight? It had been attacked. It had been ransacked by a bunch of bandits that did all sorts of damage and devastating things. And at that point, he realized, Gamzlatova indeed, that would have been me. I would have been attacked if I had gotten my dream, if I had gotten my wish to be there in that town. And so that was the end of Brachas Daf Samech. Throughout Shas, as I mentioned, we see Rabbi Akiva embodying this mindset um, and even beyond Shas. So for instance, at the end of Makos, you have the, the Shual, the, oh, the Fox. Famous story, through. famous story. Yeah. Great, great story. So the, what was the story? You want to you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, he saw the fox and he started laughing and all the other rebellion were crying because of the Behamikdash was destroyed and he was laughing because, you know, Gamzula Tola, same kind of thing. Okay, um, so he embodies and, it. And also and he, 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 had, he had hope, he had hope. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Exactly. There's also, so there's several things throughout Shasta, as you mentioned before, Tanis, Makos, things like that. Also, you think about the Seder. We have in the Haggadah, you have Bnei Brak. You know, these five Gedolim who are coming together to be doing it. Who was the most junior of all of the four, of all the five? Rabbi Akiva was. Doesn't make sense for him to be the one who's hosting everyone. There are also two of them are the ones that people usually attribute as his Rebbeim, um, who are coming to their Talmud. Usually you're supposed to go to your Rebbe. So Rabbi Eleazar, Rabbi Yoshua, they came to Rabbi Akiva for it. Um, also, one of the people there, he's the key one who says in Masech Sachim that you should be doing the Seder with your family. You should not be going. Why are they violating that? Why are they coming to Rabbi Akiva? It's because they were coming in the midst of the destruction. We used to have the Korban Pesach. We used to have how we celebrate Pesach and mark this critical event of Yitzhiyaz Mitzrayim for B'nai Israel. We have to relearn how to create the post-Korban Yiddishkeit. We have to create the Seder anew. And so they were coming to the master of Gamzla Tova for being able to see how do we do that. That is why you have it in B'nai Brak itself, in Rabbi Akiva's hometown. And so you can see across Shas, also including uh, in the Haggadah and things like that, that he was the embodiment of it. Where would he have learned it from? So we talked about his true Rebbeim that people talk about, Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Yeshua. They were having to come learn it from him. So where did he learn it from? So elsewhere in Shas, it actually tells us that Rabbi Akiva learned the longest 22 years by Nachum Ishgamzu. Nachum Ishgamzu, whose name you know, is built on Gamzu Latova. Gamzu Latova, yeah. Exactly. He had Rabbi Akiva under his wing for 22 years. Krimton still that entrepreneurial mindset of when you hit a bump in the road, when you have failure and things like that, how you can keep yourself going, how you can be able to make sure that you're going to be able to do all of these things that we were talking about with him. 
And so those 22 years, very formative. It's very interesting when I was thinking through like the ones to cover, 22 years seems to be a magical number uh, that uh, kept emerging from it. But it was what Nachumich Gamzu instilled in his Talmudim and his students, um, that mindset and that you have to reprogram yourself from the reaction of a negative, the reflex, to making it into the positive, making it into the Gamzla Tova. There's one key thing, though, let's go and bring back to the Torah U business that we use here at YU, um, that this is a reactive, this is reacting to it after it happens. Let's just keep it a Gamzla Tova. One of the things I've learned, and this is where we can see some things, there's some evidence across Shas that wasn't, uh, that is not, not in there, but it's not as prominent as Gamzla Tova. From the entrepreneurs that I studied about taking a proactive approach to recovering from failure. Entrepreneurship is a domain where failure is rampant. Everyone hears about the high rates of failure within startups and other things like that. And yet you see founders who come back even after failing and start another company, other ways in which we can see like getting back on the horse despite what happened already is a key part of the entrepreneurial mindset that they bring to it. And what I've come to appreciate is that there's also a very proactive way to be able to deal with failure planning for it, building your muscles, being able to reprogram yourself in advance and other things like that. All sorts of things that I've found that entrepreneurs are able to reach for. Very similar to Rabbi Akiva in some of the ways they reach to their faith sometimes as a way to be able to say that, you know, there must be a greater plan out here um, that I, I should just trust that there's going to be something good that comes from it. But also there's also ways in which they draw on some of it for the inspiration that they have to really work harder after they hit the failure the chip on their shoulder. I'll show them that I'm not a failure. Um, other ways in which they're able to take strength from the negative. Um, another one, this is actually captured by a student of mine at Harvard, um, a great line that she had in a paper that she did for me. Um, she was talking about why she came back to business school. And she was going along in her path. Everything was going fine. And then suddenly she hit a failure. Lightning bolt from above. And she realized at that point that, and this is the line in the paper, if I can remember exactly what it was, it was that uh, it's really easy to get stuck in a rut, especially if you're good at what you do. Essentially, you go in, you start doing something, you're just going to be on autopilot. Things are going fine. I'm not going to think about, is this the highest impact way that I can be doing something in the world? Is this the best fit for me? And other things like that. When you're in that rut, Hashem has to send a lightning bolt to you. Has to send something to say, think a little bit more deeply, put up this periscope, scan the landscape, be able to see whether this is the kind of thing that you want to be doing or whether there might be a better path. She realized from that that she wanted to head to a different path, saw business school as a way to, to pivot around it and was getting stronger from having had that failure. And so if we can go and be able to do the equivalent of boot camp, uh, this actually I got an appreciation from it. Uh, one of my daughters, after she graduated from YU, she went to Israel and served in, served in the army uh, for a year and a half. And she'd be telling me about some of the things that they're doing in boot camp. I realized that one of the key things in bootcamp, you're not fighting a war, but you're doing it in the small, building the muscles so that when the big challenge comes, you'll be a lot better suited to be able to do it. And to me, it's the same kind of thing, the entrepreneurial mindset of seeing each small bump in the road that we hit. That's our bootcamp. Take it, figure out a way to retrain ourselves, not recoil from it with a natural instinct, but to be able to say, how can I make this into a Gamzla Tov? And to me, this is the higher level of being able to partner with Hashem to be able to make it into a Gamzla Tova, not just having the very admirable Amuna and faith that Rabbi Akiva had that Hashem will make it into a, a Gamzla Tova. There are all sorts of ways that we partner with Hashem to be able to make the world better. This is one of them. If we can take that proactive approach 
to being able to partner with him to seize the day of the of the bounce in the road to be able to have it become a strengthening exercise for us. And so we are partnering with Hashem to a higher level than just if we have that the faith that Hashem will make it happen. No, let's help him make it happen by our doing our job. And if we can take a lot of those early bumps in the road that we face right now, practice the skill, practice the mindset, we'll be stronger for when the real challenge comes and hits us. So to give you one other context in terms of worldwide and application of this, um, that I was in, uh, so going back to March 3rd, 2020, I was in Washington, D.C. at that point. There's a the APAC conference that was going on. You know, the world comes and gathers there, tens of thousands of people to be able to be doing APAC. And that morning, um, there that was when news broke. First Corona? COVID case. Yeah. In the, in the from I thought of the day. I thought of the day. <laughs> very good. So putting yourself back in that time, hard to remember, a very different era. But March 3rd, 2020, um, I remember I was sitting in the big room. We had 75 of our students who had come with us to APAC. It's a, whenever it's a, we go annually, we bring them to there so they can experience it and be able to interact and develop their leadership muscles. And they're wanting to be Osek Pitsarche Tzuber, be community oriented and things like that. Um, and so right there in the big room, our dean of students came down, sat next to me 9.30 in the morning and said the one line that has changed our world since then. Said, did you hear about what happened at SAR? SAR was the school where that had the first COVID case shut down that morning. And so that was to me like the first day of COVID. What was the daf in daf yomi that day? Brachos daf samech. That daf ends with Hashem warning us through Rameo Shapiro, the founder of daf. We're about to hit a major challenge. We should find ways to get stronger from it. How can we partner with Hashem to make COVID into a Gamzla Tova? to find new ways of doing things that are better than when we were on autopilot. The rut that we were in with not having enough Kavan and Davening, not you know, the family relationships that we had that we were just on autopilot for, now we're together in the house, you know, doing everything together. Can we develop a better foundation for the family relationships? Now that we're not rushing through Davening, can we have more Kavana? Can we be able to do some learning with the kids or Shalashudis with the wife or you know, something along those lines? How can we get stronger from COVID is the thing that Hashem was giving us a push that day by having that be the daf of our embodying Rabbi Akiva, our partnering with him, um, all sorts of ways in which, to me, that's setting the, the tone for the era. There's lots of ways at YU to get into where the school's gotten even stronger from COVID. Devastating on the health side, all sorts of minuses to it. We have to, when that happens, even more so double down. I'm partnering with Hashem to make it a Gamzla Tova. Programs that we have now, that it was only because the crisis bred creativity that we had to come up with them that have now become long-lasting parts of the curriculum. Uh, pilots that we have in Eretz Yisrael for a summer internship program for a semester abroad, that we can trace the roots to it to the summer after COVID happened when we had to think differently about all of these things. And so everything that goes into our embodying Gamzla Tova, but taking the proactive entrepreneurial approach to it, being able to partner with Hashem, to be able to make the world even better for what it has. And also it takes us back, if you want, to, to Rav Yosef. Uh, we talked so with Rav Yosef. Sinai got a door, set back, gave him a deeper appreciation. Everything comes from Hashem, the embodiment of humility, all of the ways in which he had a new perspective on life that he then helped spread to everyone. That's the way in which we can hopefully be able to find ways to be able to get stronger and help everyone else 
become stronger whenever we hit that bump in the road, taking it in a very different way than what our reflex would be. But hopefully if we can work proactively to retrain ourselves, that we can be able to become a lot better at it, especially when the big, uh, big failure, when the big setback happens. Absolutely. Um, great message, great stories, really powerful. So thank you so much, Noam, for coming on today. It was really, really so great to hear from you and so great to learn with you. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks so much for asking. Yashikov uh, and kudos for everything you're doing to be able to uh, to bring more Torah to the world and uh, best of luck for everything that you're doing forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.